G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Welcome to Celebrating World Cup Lives. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. What a great time of the year this is and what a pleasure it is to have you for the first of our special series that my guest... We're remembering World Cup lives with Simon O'Donnell for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. He made his mark on cricket, he's made his mark on football, he's made his mark on racing, he's made his mark on media. He's got marks all over the place. Simon O'Donnell, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Pete, uh, pleasure to be with you. Um, The unfortunate thing probably about uh, any World Cup mark I made, it's uh, a lot of the people that are listening to us weren't even born when it happened. Well, that's the reason that we should relive it, and we'll relive it, Scoob, a little bit later on when we talk about that 87 World Cup and, of course, the events that went on immediately afterwards. But it's been a while since I've seen you. You're probably just uh, walking around in horse poo and doing all that sort of yeah, thing at the moment. Yeah, same old thing. Um, uh, uh, you take the country out of the boy, but you can't take the boy out of the country, and I've sort of returned uh, just north of Melbourne with the, the, the horses and... Uh, Pre-training and breaking in a few at the farm, Pete, and um, fattening a few cattle and and sending them off to meet their maker and and help the butchers and the the supermarkets of this world uh, give you quality meat over the over um, um, over their shop fronts. So uh, it's all good. Where did your passion for horse racing stem from, Pete? My dad. Uh, I was born and bred in Dunlequin in New South Wales, and Dad was given three mares by his dad, my grandfather, and uh, we had a, a property at Dunlickland where we did a bit of cropping and, and ran some beef, and Dad had these three brood mares that he would um, send out to get in foal each year, and we used to look after them at home. And, you know, the old days then, it was pretty um, basic sort of stuff. It was hammer and chisel to, to cut their hooves and the rasp to, um, to, to um, square them off and... Um, you know, the horses, a lot of times when Dad and I were finished with them, you know, it took them about four or five days to get back on their feet. Uh, <laughs> we weren't 100% sure what we were doing, but there's no such thing as, you know, farriers, you know, in, in Denny in those times. You had to sort of do it yourself uh, out in the country. So that that's where it came from. And, um, you know, it, it sort of stayed with me from those days on. Dad used to race the progeny with my older brother and a couple of cousins. And, and then when I got old enough, I started to get involved and, and it, it sort of grew from there. Where did the association with Terry Henderson stem from? Uh, well, ter- Terry and I got to know each other probably through the racetrack more than anything. And and then a number of uh, years ago, you know, it's over 20 years ago now, that um, uh, Terry and I sat down to have a chat and I said, you know, we, we discussed, you know, overseas and we thought America was going to be the, the new frontier for Australian racing and we tried to make some inroads over there and, we did a number of trips, and I'll never forget, you know, after 12 months, we looked at each other and said, well, you know, I think we'd done three or four trips, and Terry had done a couple, we'd done a couple together, and I'd done a couple on my own, and we hadn't had, got a client out of the US at that stage. We thought possibly we need to uh, reverse out of here and find a, a new angle, because this one's not much good, and then we found Hugs Dancer, and uh, the European window opened for us, and, and you know, it was, was a really interesting journey for a long period of time. And the journey continues to this day. Obviously, this is predominantly a cricket program, and we're going to be talking to you about that great game. But 
Um, I've asked you this question before, and so have a lot of other people. You've got a World Cup to your credit. You were part of that. But that other cup that's run on the first Tuesday in November, how important is that for you in your quest to achieve a dream in racing? Oh, look, Peter, I, I'd love to win a Melbourne Cup, but, uh, gee, it's, it's tough now. Uh, you know, the, the the quality of a Melbourne Cup field in the last six years, you know, it, it's it's gone from a, a genuine handicap probably 10 years ago to now it's basically a, a wait-for-age race. Um under handicap conditions, you know, if your horse isn't weight for age standard, you, you won't win a Melbourne Cup. And add to that that you know most of our weight for age horses in this country can't run two miles. Um, well, you're bringing then weight for age uh, horses from Europe uh, here to run over our two miles. And, and if you haven't got your hands on one of those, and that's the top echelon of those, well, you won't be winning a Melbourne Cup. And I, I think in recent years. Now, the last 10 years, those um, figures, uh, the winners of those Melbourne Cups have, have been high-quality stayers at weight-for-age level or equal weights level uh, in Europe. So, And you know, where the market has changed is, uh, you know, to buy those horses now, you, know, you need five times the money you did 10 years ago, and, and that makes it hard for the, uh, for the, I suppose, the normal working-class person. The World Cup final, Scoop, that we're going to talk about in depth in 1987 was held at Eden Gardens, one of the great sporting venues of the world. You and I have had the pleasure of uh, being at Flemington for Melbourne Cups and we've been there for the television broadcast. There is something about that day, though, that captivates not only the people who love racing but captivates everybody in this country. It's just such a privilege to be there and to feel the buzz of a Melbourne Cup. You've seen big sporting events around the world how does it compare? Oh, I don't think there's anything like a Melbourne Cup. Uh, you know, participating in a grand final or winning a World Cup, as I was lucky enough to do with a, with a group of mates um, all those years ago, they're fantastic memories. A Melbourne Cup's different in that you're probably as emotionally as engaged as you are in any of those sporting events where you can make a contribution to the outcome. You know, the thing with a Melbourne Cup, you can't make any contribution. You know, the horses out of your hands it's being trained by the trainer it's being ridden by the jockey it's um, drawn a barrier that's um, all done with uh, in, a, in a fair and reasonable manner and it could be you know, 24 or 24 um, is your doc- jockey switched on you're going to have luck in running is mother nature interfered and there's been an inch of rain for the last two hours prior to the cup all those sorts of things so you're really engaged but you can't change the destiny in a game of footy you can miss a tackle and get the next one in a game of cricket you can bowl a pour over and come on again the next you know in 10 minutes time and have another go on and and rectify it so um, you're as engaged in a Melbourne Cup but you you can't change the destiny of it In in a game of sport that you're playing you're physically and mentally involved in you can you can change the destiny of it or or attempt to change the destiny of it Um, race you can't and I think that's the beauty of it and Seeing the effect it has on people is extraordinary. You know, um, the times we've run, won big races and you know, j- just grown people who have been very successful in business, they, they just haven't had that same feeling, that same emotion as they get out of you know, winning this horse race. And it's hard to explain, uh, but you know it when you feel it. 
Let's partially make the transition towards cricket now by drawing parallels with the sport that you're heavily invested in now. Both sports have had their integrity issues in recent times. One thing that you and Terry at OTI have been very hot on is that as far as people who cut corners is concerned, there's no place for it in racing. What was your attitude, if we translate that to what happened a little more than 12 months ago in cricket? Look, I think any any sport, you, you, you lose the integrity of the sport. You know, you, you're on a very fast track to nowhere. And, um, you know, racing has experienced that in a number of areas, um, not just Victoria, but New South Wales, Queensland in recent times. Uh, you, you have to stamp it out and you, you have to show a very strong arm of the law because you, know, you just can't let people... Uh, flout with the rules, um, get away with it because you know it, it just um, it, it becomes a. I suppose it just brings you know that belief that the industry relies on that we are clean. It isn't an equal playing field. You know, trying to get new participants in racing has got harder and harder over the last ten years, and I have no doubt that the integrity issues we've faced over that period ha- has lessened our market and lessened the interest in people being involved. Now, international participation has grown. Um, I, I don't care what statistics uh, the racing authorities come up with. The actual participation um, within uh, the new racing community, I think, is far down on what it was 10 years ago. Uh, you're just not seeing the new new players enter the industry like we used to. So that's the effect integrity has, and... You know, it, it's uh, we have to be strong in what we do. Um, I think in recent times we've really shown that, and and it's said to the community, "Hey, we mean business, and we we've got to make sure we stay that way." With regards to the ball tampering that occurred, when you first heard about it, what was your reaction? Because it seemed to polarise people. A lot of people said, "Oh, it goes on all the time. There's nothing to see here." And others thought it was the most heinous crime that had ever been committed in Australian sport. Where did you sit with it? Well, I, I think that the the ball tampering issue is a rubbery line. Uh, uh, any any person who's played cricket has you know, suntan lotion, whether they're chewing a chewy gum, you know, a juicy fruit, whatever it might. You know, they'll, they'll lick their fingers. Now, technically, you're chewing some chewy gum. You you lick your fingers. You rub the ball. That's technically ball tampering. Because it's not natural saliva; it's it's you know it's it's sugar, it's um, glucose, you know, to help shine that cricket ball. Same thing with a um, uh, with sun cream, you know, those sorts of things. But that that's a that's an acceptable um, tampering level, for want of a better way of putting it. Yeah. This completely. This was just stupidity. You know, this wasn't within acceptable competitive competitive rules between two nations this was just absolute and utter stupidity and you know uh, I must admit I had no sympathy for the guys that were involved in it none at all because I said well hang on you know you're 25 30 and you know 29 or 28 give us a spell you know, you're not having your hands held at primary school anymore or early in secondary school um, these guys took you know tampering to a whole new level and and again I think it sent shudders through the the cricketing community, and disappointed in particular people who had represented their country in, in previous times because 
you know that rubbery line that that had uh, that had been stretched and it went well past breaking point. One of the things, Scoob, that shocked me at the time, I, I remember I was up that night and I was listening to Jack Heverin, who was there calling the game and hearing these events unfold. And I had to go to Canberra the next day to call the first round of the football and I was with Terry Wallace. And one of the things that we talked about was the lack of remorse that was shown with the, the media conference afterwards. <laughs> it was almost as though they expected that, oh, yeah, well, we got caught, but it'll blow over and then we'll just keep on playing cricket. And it was never going to work out that way. No, 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 it wasn't. And you know, that, that uh, I suppose, lack of feel for the enormity of what had just taken place was extraordinary. And, and you know, again, there's been a lot said at the time and since about, you know, who was to blame here. I, there's no one else to blame here as far as I'm concerned bar the players involved. And, and no one's going to tell me that the environment in Australian cricket and the competitiveness of these players now is any different to what it was back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 90s and early in the new millennium. It, you know, it, it's always been competitive. Uh, this was you know, stupidity personified and this was, you know, um, uh, if you like, um, a lack of leadership uh, on and off the field close to the team. I don't think this was, you know, people have singled out, you know, there was a meeting and administrators were there and say, we don't pay you to, to lose, we pay you to win. Well, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happens. You know, th- this isn't a participation sport at E-grade level that um, everyone goes out and we, we get equal time on the court. This is representing your country and and upholding a history that has, has been part of our country ever since God was a boy. So there's, there's a lot to it. Um, these players are no more competitive than what the old players were. Uh, it, it's just they, they took it to the nth degree, which was just wrong. And I don't think that was anyone else's fault, bar uh, those people close to it. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Simon O'Donnell. Plenty more still to come on the other side of the break for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Life. You're listening to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Great to have Simon O'Donnell as my guests for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Take us back to the start of your love affair with the game of cricket. Oh, again, Pete, that was you know, country upbringing, kid in the bush, ride your bike home from school, um, uh, have some teddy bear biscuits and a milkshake uh, or a Milo. And get on your bike again and either get to the cricket nets or down to the footy ground or, you know, that was just country kids' life. So um, I had a passion for both winter and summer sports, as all country kids did, and we thoroughly enjoyed that upbringing, which, you know, I think was a was just a, a wonderful way to, to start a life and enjoy your sport. And you were one of that rare breed who did play uh, football at the top level, the VFL as it was then, and then cricket at the top level. And unfortunately, those days are gone. It'll never happen again. It simply can't with the professionalism of the game. No, you know, the, the time you've got to put into both sports now, you, you, you can't be a jack of all trades, as they used to say in the classics. Um, you know, so you, you, you've got to dedicate your time to, to one or the other. You know, that great modern day success story, I, I think, is Alex Keith, who yeah. you know, turned his mind to to uh, cricket at 
you know, 16 years of age and is now, you know, probably the best defender in the AFL at the moment uh, after turning his back on cricket and, um, and you know, reigniting his footy career. It's been superb what he's done and, and uh, you know, full credit to him. It's great to watch him, uh, the skills he's been able to still sustain, even though he had four or five years where he wouldn't have touched a footy. Describe yourself as a footballer, Scoob. You've suited up 24 times for the Saints. <laughs> a good average. Good average. <laughs> <laughs> good just, average? Just an average knockabout footballer, Pete. It wasn't long after that stint in VFL football that the career in cricket started to blossom. One day, cricket was really finding its feet at this stage. But, of course, there was always the lure of the baggy green. Did you see yourself as a test player predominantly, or did you quickly come to realise that the one-day game suited your talents? Oh, that, that took probably a bit of time. I was just a cricketer. You know, I just loved playing cricket. And you know, you know, playing the first few Sheffield Shield games, I'd never played a, you know, even a game of two-day cricket. Um, so you, know, you had to then adjust. Well, you, I shouldn't say I hadn't played two-day cricket. You had, you know, Saturday, Saturday to Saturday you know, you'd, in, in district cricket. So I'd never played two days in a row or let alone four days in a row. But uh, you know that was the that was the starting point, and you know I thoroughly enjoyed that um, as a starting point. But uh, I didn't categorise myself as as any sort of cricketer. Um, you know, from a, a one day cricketer or a, or a test cricketer, I just wanted to be a cricketer, and and you know where I landed was where I landed. So let's move on a couple of years and talk about this famous World Cup, the World Cup that is still remembered by a lot of people to this day, and the one thing that I remember overall, or one of the things I remember about that World Cup, Scoob, is the fact that you were wearing white clothing. Yeah, red balls. Yeah, white yeah. clothing, red balls. Um, uh, yeah, everything, everything was played during the, um, uh, during the day. Uh, you know, we, we'd, we'd started the, the coloured clothing. Obviously, uh, Kerry Packer had started the coloured clothing of the World Series cricket and day-night cricket and um, we'd started that in in Australia, but in India hadn't gone down that track at that stage. So, yeah, it was um, it it was a traditional game of one day cricket, if there is such uh, such a thing, Pete. As it turns out, though, you had other things to worry about uh, when you went over for the '87 World Cup, and you were aware that something wasn't quite right even before that World Cup got underway. Yeah, um, I, had a, I had a couple. Of, I had a lump on my ribs and. I went and had it treated before I left. I had it for a while, so I said, "Just kill the pain, and everything could be sweet, and we'll go over and I'll, we'll we'll hook into this when I get home." So it was pretty much as simple as that. I'm thinking, you know, 23 year old, you're not you're not telling me what I can and can't do. I'm I'm off. I'm out of here. Two things, Scoob. How did you keep it from your teammates? Was there anyone that you did even intimate to that you had a problem? And the other thing is. With that in the back of your mind, you're playing in the biggest tournament that your sport has to offer in a one-day sense. How do you keep yourself focused on the job at hand rather than what's going on behind the scenes that nobody knows about? I, th- I think call it the exuberance of youth. You know, there, there are a lot of things when you're young. You know, you can you can you, you just soldier on. You you just don't think of the ramifications. You you just you, you move on and. You know, I, I was living a, a a dream that every you know every time we walked out onto that one day field, you put a baggy green cap on your head. You know, and, um, that that ultimately just shut anything out of your mind um, that that may have been worrying you. You, you had a job to do, so yeah, that that um, 
as we got closer to the tournament ending and uh, we played a semi-final in Pakistan, which we won, and we went back to the hotel to have a bit of a celebration before we went to the airport to fly back to India for the final. And that was the first time um, I had uh, – it had hit me because I thought, Jesus, you know, in a week I'm back home and I'm going to find out what the hell's going on here. So uh, – and probably in my mind I knew what was going on and, and I knew there was going to be some challenges ahead. So uh, I, I did um, confide in the Australian coach um, when we arrived in India – uh, because what we did have, uh, you know, at that celebration after we won the semi-final in Pakistan against Pakistan, um, you know, we had a party. And, you know, I was a bit down in the mouth and I left early, but went back to my room. And you know, when we got to India, I got fined for being a pain in the ass at the uh, at the party. You know, <laughs> not enjoying myself and not having enough beers. And it wasn't that I wasn't happy we'd won. What I was more worried about was, you know, I'm another day closer to getting home and finding out what the hell's you know going on with me. So, um, yeah, I, I got fine a little. I better just clear this up because that wasn't me. And I, I went to our coach and I just said, look, I've got an issue. And I lifted up my shirt and I said, look, when I came here, I had no lumps and now I've got three. I also got, you know, I, got, I think I've got a problem. But I said, it will not interfere with what's going to happen in three days' time in, in a World Cup final. Be assured, I'll be as, I'll, I'll be, there won't be a, any issue whatsoever. You know, my mind will be focused on what we're doing. And and to his credit, you know, he could have said, look, he could have gone to probably team meetings and said, look, he's uh, he's in strife, O'Donnell, and you know, I, I possibly could have been left out of a World Cup final. But um, thankfully, you know, he kept it to himself or trusted that I could do what I told him I could do and and um, not lose focus. And uh, the rest is history. We'll talk about what happened when you came back in a moment, but from a cricketing point of view, India and Pakistan are the host venues for this World Cup and they both get beaten in the semi-finals. What was the mood around the subcontinent? Because we know how passionate they are about their cricket. So Australia and England get through. Was it like funereal? Was that the mood after they were beaten? Oh, you're going to have to explain to me. I need that thesaurus we were talking about earlier. What was that word you just said? Funereal. Funereal. We're sponsored by Tobin Brothers Funerals, who <laughs> celebrate lives, so there's the connection. Well, that's a word I've never heard before in my life. I'm not 100% confident it's a word. but I Would you like me to rephrase it then? No. Was the mood a bit flat <laughs> <laughs> after India and Pakistan were beaten? Well, it might have been flat for uh, the the co-hosts. It wasn't flat for us. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what transpired there... Us beating Pakistan in Pakistan, that was a challenge in itself. We were very keen to get to the airport and get the hell out of there because uh, you did feel that, oh, this, you know, it's not a good feel around here. And they, they are particularly passionate, um, the Pakistanis and the Indians. The Pakistanis to a, a different level to the Indians, in, in my humble opinion. So we were pretty keen to get to the airport and get the hell out, uh, which we did. Uh, the With England beating India... And the final being at Calcutta, suddenly the Indians were straight away. These you know these Aussies are all right. They're they're where the England team knocked ours out. We'll support the Aussies. So for the hundred thousand people that were eating cartons, majority of them Indians, they were all going for us. So yeah. it, it was like playing at the MCG in front of your eighty odd thousand fans. There was um, uh, all the cheering was for us, and all the support was for us, which. I think ultimately, you know, it always helps that little bit, makes you that little bit comfortable, more comfortable under, you know, under quite a bit of pressure. 
a lot of sports people uh, go through one of their biggest moments of the career and they look back many years later and they say it was all a blur. What do you remember about the final? Do you remember it vividly? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the tightness in your guts, I'll never forget. And just the, not anxiety, but the anxiousness, not, not a continuing, but just there was a level of um, anxiety, anxiousness all day. And it was and it was an upper level, it was up a notch. You know, the key to anything I think at that level of sport, you know, all sides are going to go through that that anxious time. They know there's more on the line here than a home and away game, but it's the ones that can still execute their skills at their normal level uh, under that pressure. And, and that's exactly what Australia did on the day. You know, um, we got off to a good start with uh, Swampy and Burnie and. Dino played, you know, played well. AB, you know, got his runs. Mike Valletta was super. You know, it yeah. was, it, it, you know, we put the heat on them. You know, we, we had a, a good total in front of us and, and we thought, you know, come on, now it's up to the bowlers and, and the bowlers went about doing their job. So it was just one of those days where, you know, if you had a chink in your armour, you were buggered. Um, and that's one thing I, I suppose I under, that, that taught me about elite sport and, uh, you know, I love watching grand finals and, and finales in elite sport because, you know, if there's, if there's a chink in the armour, it, it will show up, whether that's at a contest, whatever it might be. And, and the side that hasn't got that chink are the ones that ultimately win those games. And I think on that day, um, Australia didn't have that chink in their armour. They were more committed than what England was. England were committed, but uh, I, I think we handled the day better than they did. After all of that euphoria, you come home. I, I seem to recall that you held a media conference and then not long after that you were on the operating table. Oh, I, I, that was after I was on the operating table. Okay. Um, you know, I, was, I, I came home and had a biopsy. I, I went from the airport to to, um, uh, to Wetworth Hospital, had a biopsy, um, woke up, doctor was sitting at the end of my bed, gave me the... the, the um, uh, gave me the news and, you know, I had to ring mum and dad and they came down from Denny and all that sort of thing and, and you went through all the the usual, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be flipping about it, but again, I'm no, um, uh, I'm no different to anyone else, you know, I was, I was given a, a, um, um, a diagnosis that was, uh, I had to deal with, uh, I was no martyr, I just did what, or tried to do what I had to do, um, and uh, after all the, you know, the initial emotion of, you know, the, the why me and all the other things you go through, you, know, you eventually sat back and said, hey, um, you know, let's get real about this. Um, the second option is not one you want to take. Let's get on with it and, and understand it and do the best we possibly can to get through it. And was it just a matter of a few months, Scoob, that you got the good news that you were declared cancer-free? Oh, Twelve months. Um, yeah. I had a couple of operations and, and in and out of chemo and different things. I, I was lucky to, looking back, and you know if that's that, if you can be, you know I was I was only young, so they could hit me with basically the kitchen sink, and it, you know it wasn't going to worry my system, so I could have you know, maximum doses of chemotherapy and everything they needed to do, and I could have it you know, regularly, and they could keep you know um, building the cancer up, which you know. I thought was uh, well. That was a positive um, in in a world that had quite a few 
probably negatives flowing at you. But, you know, the one thing I'll, I'll never forget, and, and you know, people listening to this that have been through a, a cancer diagnosis and are, um, are living with it now, you know, that first day, uh, you know, there's a realisation, obviously, when the doctor comes in and says, this is the, this is the problem. There's another realisation when you're going through tests and, and machines to see exactly where uh, this disease had got to throughout your body. But the main realisation is when you, you know, when, when they start treating you with, with chemotherapy, I'll, I'll never forget the butterfly clip going into my hand and, and them turning the tap on, you know, turning the switch on for the chemotherapy to start. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that feeling that, that it, it just shook you and you, you just felt this, this overwhelming um, uh, fright, if you like, of, wow, this is real. You know, this is not a dream, wake up here. Um, there, there's there's you know, a serious issue that you're going to deal with, and and that was ultimately I think what really got my head around. I, I thought I had my head around it, and then I went and had my first treatment. And, I, and again, I'll, I'll um, that that feeling of chemotherapy going through your body for the first time. I thought, holy shit, you know, this is this is fair income. This is uh, um, you know, get yourself prepared here, and uh, off you went. And you, you know. Um, being real was a was a key ingredient. Um, getting through it in the in the end and having you know, great support, but ultimately, um, and again, I I, I make a point. I, I was no martyr. I just did what I thought I had to do. You know, people ultimately, it's the most personal thing they'll ever experience in their life, and they can have great support around them, but ultimately, they've got to get their head around them themselves because all the support won't help them if they don't believe they can get there in the first place. Well, I guess we've spoken about two great victories, one in a team sense and one in a personal sense in that segment. And not only that, you learned a new word from me, which is in itself (laughs) something to probably cherish. Well, wherever our journey goes, Pete, I'll never forget it. (laughs) Thank you very much. Why don't we take a break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about this World Cup and your expectations of what is going to go on. Simon O'Donnell is my guest. Hope you're enjoying the chat on This Is Your World Cup Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating Lives. What a great joy it is to have Simon O'Donnell with us for your World Cup life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating Lives. You've been busy in the break. It may, I, I have bad news for you, and it mightn't it's be not a word. such a big highlight for you that you and I are talking. Mate, funereal. I've yeah. uh, gone to the Oxford Dictionary. Okay. Uh, thank you to Google, of course. No results found. Well, Peter? you've known me Nothing. for long enough, Scoob, to know that the possibility that I actually made something up is is quite distinct. Yes, well, <laughs> you have, and it's something that is now indelibly printed in my mind that every time I see you, I'm going yes. to somehow use the word funereal. Well, let's hope we get to do it a lot over the years, <laughs> yes, and hopefully over right. a cold one at some stage. Quite right. Uh, this World Cup... Uh, when you were playing World Cup cricket, the 50-over game was huge and uh, it was regular that we'd have 70,000, 80,000 people at the MCG. The game of cricket has changed because of the introduction of T20. Do you think that there is still a place on the big stage for the 50-over game? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I think this is the tournament that, that promotes it. If you remember that last World Cup final between uh, Australia and New Zealand, was 
you know, at the MCG was packed and you know, Brendan McCullum and um, he got knocked over by Mitchell Stark in that first over, I think the third ball, yeah. you know, all, all those sorts of things. Um, a lot of people say that's the loudest roar they have ever heard at the MCG. Oh, it was extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And, and you know, may I say, uh, tactically, it, it's where New Zealand fell down. I mean, there are times when you've got to just lock up your temptation to stay to the team plan just for a period of time. I don't think New Zealand gave a World Cup final its its proper respect and it brought them undone in the end. You know, they were, they were beaten comprehensively. You know, there'd be... What you get away with in the home and away games ain't the same as what you get away with in a final. And, and I think New Zealand really misread that and didn't give themselves the best opportunity. And, and they fell behind immediately because, you know, once once McCallum was gone, you know, it was basically game gone. Uh, they relied on him so much. He was their heartbeat and uh, he was already done. But getting back to the, the World... The great thing I think about the World Cup and where it keeps reinstating the 50-over game... Pete is everyone's there. You know, they're all in one place. You don't see all these nations in one place anymore. Uh, and, and the one thing that one day cricket does, it gets through the World Cup, it gets all the top cricketing nations all in the one place playing each other. Yeah, and that's the format this year, that everybody plays each other rather go, rather than going into groups and sometimes you might be able to escape a strong opponent. So everybody's up against each other at various times. Scoob, they're talking about the magic number 500 has been mentioned. Now, when you were playing, if you got 240, it was a pretty good score. If you got 280, that was exceptional. They're talking about 500. Is that realistically possible that you could score at 10 and over for 50 overs? Oh, I don't think so. I don't, you know, a lot of the pommy grounds are a bit smaller, but I, I you couldn't bowl that poorly, could you? You couldn't, so. you couldn't have every bowler going for 100, could you? Although Australia went pretty close against England. I think they made 481 in a one-day not that long ago. And uh, and it was a really good last over that kept them to 481. Mm. So maybe we're not that far away. Oh, gee whiz. You know, if that, that happens, I'd be... Oh, oh, I wouldn't like to be a bowler. <laughs> yeah, I, well, mean, I wouldn't Vera, like to be a bowler. Vera Coley has said that... It, Scores of 250 will be defended at the World Cup. Don't worry about 500. He said the pressure of the situation makes it a very different animal. Yeah, and, and that's that's a really key ingredient. You know, there's there's um, more on the line here than a than a normal you know um, three match series between Australia and India out here. You know, one in Adelaide, one in Perth, one in Tassie. You know, that this is this happens once every four years. It's you know. Um, uh, all nations, uh, you know, best team wins, um, equal conditions, off we go. So, you know, just that pressure alone, I think, limits to a level the, the, the score. I think there'll still be 300 pluses, but I, I, I can't see, you know, you might see a 400, you know, one of the minnows against one of the s- supreme powers, but I, I don't think we're going to see, see anything that's too out of the ordinary from what we're used to now. What about the boy from Colac, Aaron Finch, captain of the one-day team, but in a very unique situation because the previous Australian captain is coming back into the team after the suspension. Dave Warner, a big presence in the team, comes back in. How much does he need to be his own man for the next month and a half? 
that's important. Uh, you know, he, he's got to take ownership of it. Um, I think Stephen Smith is a really decent human being. You know, he, he had a he had a brain fade, but I think he's a really decent human being. So I think he'll be of wonderful support to Aaron Finch. So I, I don't have any issue there. With, with the time they've spent out of the game, you know, surely they can now manage David Warner. You know, and, and if they if they're not, well, you know, th- there is some issues with team management. You know, if he's not, you know. Um, if he starts to look like he's getting out of line with what he's saying or what he's doing, you know, and there's not someone there, a group there to pull, get him to pull his head in, well, um, you know, that, that's the Australian team management's own fault. So I, I think he'll get plenty of support from Steve Smith, Aaron Finch. He's got a really well-balanced team. He's got a, you know, a number of Victorians in there or, or guys he's played with um, here in Victoria. Uh, in that team, so I think I think it you know I think it all goes well for him, um, and he's played enough cricket now. He's played a lot of cricket, so I, I, I think everything could be pretty good. I think it'll even be a little better for him because Steve Smith's there. If in a few weeks' time, Scoob, we're getting ready to see Australia in another World Cup final, as we did in 1987, and we spoke about it. Who do you think it'll be against? Is it likely to be the host nation because of the conditions there, or do you think Coley can lead India there? Who's the team to beat? I reckon India's the team to beat. I, I, the Poms are going to have to be good to cop the pressure. You know, the pressure's going to be enormous, always is, on the the home nation. Uh, I can see them probably you know, uh, getting through to a semi, but, gee, it, it's, it's a different... It's a different ball game then, and, and guys have got to be extraordinary in their home country. So uh, I, I wouldn't think that, um, you know, I would think going into the tournament, England's probably the best one-day team in the world. Can they win the tournament? I don't think so. Um, and there's enough challenges in that second tier, including India, Australia, South Africa, uh, I, I, you know, New Zealand. I, I think there's some really good teams that... Uh, are going to challenge England. And if they can cope with the pressure, yes, they're the best team in the world, I think, at the moment. But, you know, that's, uh, that's a massive ask to win a World Cup at home. You're listening to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Celebrating World Cup Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating Lives. Our final segment with Simon O'Donnell for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Now, Scoob, I, I gave you a, a little teaser just before the break that I was going to ask you for another prediction, perhaps five months down the track. So that would take us, what, to around about the start of November, oh, thereabouts? I thought you were going down the Ashes track, but you're not. No, 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 no. No, let's go, let's go the four-legged track. All right. If you're finally going to get your hands on that three-handled <laughs> loving cup that everybody wants, who's owned a racehorse... Is there one at the moment that you think might be able to get the job done for you in November? No. Right. No, not at the moment. Glad I asked. Um, But I will... uh, You can take this to the bank. Mm. It'll be a European-bred horse that wins the Melbourne Cup in 2019, Peter. Is that always going to be the case now? Well, it won't always be the case, but nine times out of ten, eight times out of ten, after what Vintage Crop did in 1993 and brought the race to the attention of the world? Yep. Yep. No, no, it, it, it'll be a European domination. Um, we had a we we fleeted with breeding a few stayers there for a couple of years, but everyone's dropped off that again now. 
um, you know, the, the stay-ins that were there to, to breed staying horses. You know, a lot of them have dropped off the map. Fiorente is still doing well, but, you know, uh, you know it's just so not commercial of- for people in this country. Is this because of the lack of distance races that we have? Whereas you go to Europe and there's a you know thirty two, thirty six hundred metre race on every program, but we very rarely see those sort of distances. Yeah, but we we just don't have the horses that can run those journeys, or they can run the journeys, but they run them a lot slower than the Europeans do. Yes. So, yeah. you know, hence there's so many European horses coming in. And you look at the you know the Saturday twenty five hundred metre races that uh, that happen at Flemington, you know, every you know twice a month. Um, there's hardly any locally bred horses now. You know, they're they're all secondary horses out of uh, the UK, France. Uh, bought at you know tried sales in the UK and France with with staying blood in them. So you know, it's just the way it is. It, it's nothing again. It's not not to offend anyone, but the bottom line is, as we were talking earlier, the Melbourne Cup is now a handicap for weight for age horses. And if you haven't got a weight for age horse, you don't win it. And we don't have any weight for age staying horses here in Australia. We we have, you know, some adequate ones, but not as good as these ones that are coming from Europe. And, um, you know, I think it's going to be a long time before we see another Australian-bred horse win a Melbourne Cup. Uh, mate, it's been uh, a great story, um, a story of triumph in so many ways. It's been terrific to share it with you again. Uh, hopefully I'll get to share your company very soon once more. You certainly will, Pete. it uh, been a pleasure having a chat. Simon O'Donnell joining us on This Is Your World Cup Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We've got some special guests coming from the world of cricket over the duration of the World Cup. I hope you can join us next time. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.